great to be here. And I want to just, I was thinking, what would uh, be a help to VCM students? So I'm going to do some I don't know that I've done for a while here. And uh, if I have some of the older students, yes, I'm sure the second time won't be a problem. But I want to deal with something that is a huge issue that I feel with, with teenagers all the time, and that is assurance of salvation. Now, I want to do something this morning. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed, and I want to ask a question. I want to ask just a simple question. And I almost did it with eyes open because I don't think it's that big a deal, but I thought, well, let me do eyes closed. How many of you would say at least once in your life you did have a serious struggle with the assurances of salvation? Maybe more than once, but at least once. Can I see your hand, please? Raise it high. Thank you very much. You can put your hands down, and you can look back up here. That's a normal response. It really is. I'd say normally when I ask that, it's about 75%. I didn't do a scientific counting, but it seemed to be somewhere in that 70 to 80 percentile. That's very normal. I think the least I've ever had was 50%. And I think we all would recognize that's anecdotal and certainly is not scientific, but I think we could say, and I certainly found this to be true, assurance of salvation many times is a big issue. Now, particularly for your freshmen, the freshmen here, I want to deal with this message because some of you may still not be on solid ground when it comes to the assurance of your salvation. And may I say this, assurance of salvation is foundational for Christian growth. I often say, and when I'm in revival meetings with teenagers, if you've got all kinds of sin problems in your life, I want you to know you're saved because the solution to your sin problems is that the solution lives in you. <laughs> Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, if you're not sure the spirit's in there, how are you going to be able to fight the battle against the flesh? Well, you're not going to be able to. So assurance of salvation is a very key issue when it comes to Christian victory, when it comes to Christian progress, when it comes to moving forward. In fact, I do believe the dynamic of assurance of salvation is key to understanding the Christian life because it's the same truth or dynamic. We touched on it a little bit last night in a Christian life scenario. So let's just deal with it. Now, you might ask the question, why do people struggle with assurance of salvation? And there's a lot of things I could give on it. I'll give you some practical things. One of it is the advent of the Christian school movement. Uh, back when I was uh, uh, in uh, elementary school, there weren't a lot of Christian schools. There were a few down in Florida, but it just began, it just hit the country, and particularly independent Baptist church movement and in fundamental uh, movement, there was a, just a sweeping across the nation of Christian schools. And it was in the 1970s, it just seemed like they were just everywhere. It was really an exciting time, to be honest with you. And uh, what soon happened? I remember the very first year uh, I went to Christian high school, okay, if I can say 7th to 12th. My dad opened a Christian high school grade 7 to 12 in one year. You can imagine that. And uh, I, there was at least 30 a class, so at least 150 kids. Uh, and I think it was more than that. Uh, when my dad started the Christian school. So a lot of kids were coming in from all kinds of backgrounds and churches, but largely independent Baptists were what made up the school. And I remember that very first year, we had, I think, six seniors. Uh, that was the smallest class, obviously. We had six seniors, and man, were they on fire for God. Those guys were so excited. They couldn't believe we could pray in class. And just everything about the Christian school, and that trickled down. And I remember that first year, there was a lot of spiritual fervor fervency in that Christian school. Now, I was in seventh grade, so I watched this happen. I don't know, by the time I got in high school, all that was gone. I mean, all the excitement was gone, all the spiritual emphasis was gone, and it, there was a carnal spirit in, 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 in most of the classes. My particular class, we had 30, graduated 30. I don't know, I can't prove this because I've not done research, but I'd probably guess only about five of the 30 would be in any kind of semblance of a church we'd, have, you know, we'd be excited about. And uh, even, if, even a broad definition of that. Um, most of them uh, probably wouldn't even be in church. 
Now, what happened to the Christian school movement? What happened to a lot of, I won't go into exactly what happened, but what the manifestation was of, you had a lot of kids who claimed to be Christians who didn't live like it. That sound fair? Yeah, some of you will know a little bit about Christian. A lot of kids claiming to be Christians. So preachers began to de develop messages to try to get the kids to uh, believe they were lost. So there are all kinds of messages. Now, unfortunately, I'm not sure all of them were theologically thought through and precise. So there began to be a lack of assurance on the wrong foundation, if that makes any sense at all. So the advent of the Christian school movement, that certainly uh, contributed to the assurance issue. Then, of course, theolo uh, theology always does. Depending on how you view the perseverance of the saints, sometimes how that is presented and preached can cause people particularly to have uh, doubting their salvation. A well-known theologian, if I mention his name, you'd recognize the name, said this, if there is any reserve in your obedience, you're going to hell. Okay, let me just say that again. If there is any reserve in your obedience, you're going to hell. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does that help you have assurance of salvation? And the answer is, for most of you, not, because you struggle with reserves in obedience. And we all do. I think he meant well, but he comes from a theological position that would back that up, particularly on the, uh, the P of the tulip, uh, the perseverance of the saints. Okay, and so uh, that uh, caused people to get rattled. Okay, so I won't go into all of it. I've got a whole lecture on it where I quote some of the great theologians and some of their statements you could see would really cause people to think, I, might, I must not be saved. In fact, that affected preaching. Let me give you an example. I remember one young preacher several years ago, yeah, this would be a 90s now. He was preaching and he said this. I'll never forget it because I was back to thinking this is terrible. He said, young person, if you don't have your devotions every single day, you're going to hell. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you think that would rattle people's assurance if they believe that? It would rattle some of your assurance. See, the problem is that there's not good theology for that statement. And uh, I've heard other statements. Now, some are a little more like, if you're out drinking every weekend, you're lost. Now, that's a little more, seems a little more palatable, but it still has the same theological problem. Because assurance is not rooted in our performance. Assurance is rooted in his. So some of you in this room may be struggling for a variety of reasons, but can I give you observationally, again, not scientific, the biggest reason why I see Christian kids doubt their salvation, hang on, this is kind of rough. You know why? Because they're bad. They're defeated. Many young people will say these kind of statements. How could I be saved and think what I think? How could I be saved and treat my parents the way I do? How could I be saved and say the things I say? Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, people can do really bad things and be lost. Obviously, that's the case. But what we want to do here is be theologically precise when it comes to assurance. Many people are rattled because they got sin issues in their life. They can't seem to get victory over, so they say, how can I be saved? Just how can I be saved? That's the window they go out. I had a, years ago, I was working with a, a Minuteman who did not come from our realm, and he told me, he said, man, I got a kid at my Bible college. He's been saved five times. You got a theological problem with that? <laughs> I think he took the song, Save, 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 literally, okay. He was into it, okay. Uh, so um, uh, now, you know, honestly, to be honest with you, I feel sorry for that kid. Now, why? Because the problem is he probably is saved, but his lack of assurance is hurt in every other area of his Christian life, just rattling him. So you might ask the question, well, how can you be, uh, how can you know you're saved? Now, I'm going to lay things out. Just real quickly, I want you to understand things. How many have ever heard a message that was kind of, it maybe not been titled this, but it was the idea of it, the tests, plural, the tests, 
plural of salvation. Can I see your hand? Anybody at all? Okay, I have heard those as well. The problem with those, it takes everything and puts it on the same level, and I don't believe the Bible does that. I believe there is one test of salvation, and there are secondary evidences. See, secondary evidences lack fallibility. I mean, they have fallibility. They're not infallible. Secondary evidences. And uh, in a moment, we'll deal with a few secondary evidences to help you understand what I'm talking about. But there is just one test, one test. Sometimes when I'm lecturing on this, I'll, I'll uh, write uh, Acts 16.31 on the, on the board, and it says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And I'll ask this question. If 100 teenagers genuinely, biblically believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, how many will be saved? And the answer is, I think we just found the test. See, it's, it's, that always works. So let's go to Hebrews chapter number 3. I want you to look at verse number 14. I want you to see this real quickly and kind of wind it together here. There are some of these truths I've presented over the years. Realize it's been a few years since some of them have been presented, so I wanted just to represent this, particularly to you young people. Notice what uh, so many people have called this, the Apostle Paul, the anonymous writer of the uh, epistle to the Hebrews, but I won't say that. But anyway, it says, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Isn't that interesting? For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the steadfast of our confidence, or our, the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, it's important for us to know that our made is the perfect tense. Okay, how many Greek students out here know what I'm talking about when I talk about the perfect tense? Can I see your hands, please? Okay, the perfect tense. Good. The seniors are raising your hand. That's a good thing for our Greek professors. Okay, the perfect tense. Most of you know if we were teaching the perfect tense, we would draw a period and we draw an arrow. The perfect tense means there's a commencement, there's a beginning, and then there is effect. So the Bible says, for we have been made, is the idea, we came into union with Jesus Christ, we are now partakers with Christ, there was a beginning and there's a continuing effect from that initial union with Jesus. It'd be like this, I've said this before, if you take a sponge, put it in a bucket of water, is the water in the sponge or the sponge in the water? Well, they're both true. You take somebody, put them in Jesus, get, they get saved. Is a Christian in Jesus or is Jesus in the Christian? And we all know, well, they're both. The problem with the sponge is you can pull out of the water and dry it, but you can't pull a Christian out of Jesus. There's an inseparable union. Now, here's the point. Like we talked about the picnic briefly, you can't go to hell. It's impossible because you're in union with Jesus Christ. That union lasts for eternity. He that hath the Son hath. He that hath not the Son of God hath not. Life. See, that union with eternal life means you can't go to hell. It's impossible because Jesus can't. Okay, so there's a union with Jesus. Now, how you say, well, I'd like to know that I'm for sure. Because if, you're in, if there's been a beginning, there will be a continuing effect for eternity. For we have been made partakers of Christ is the idea there. Well, how do you know that? Well, it's going to tell you. Here's how you know. If you hold the beginning of your confidence steadfast in the end. Now, as I've studied it, friends, I don't believe you can hold fast the beginning of your confidence and then not hold it fast. <laughs> So if you're holding fast the beginning of your confidence right now, you will. You will. Okay, so here's the test. Are you holding fast the beginning of your confidence right now? Because if you are, that's the test. Now, before I go into it all, let's take the word confidence for a moment. The word confidence is a very interesting word. And the word confidence has the idea of that which stands under. Okay, it has the Greek preposition 
hupo, okay, in front of it, and, uh, and then it has the word stasis, that which stands under. By the way, in Greek language, I love prepositions. I hope you fall in love with them too. Okay, but anyway, it's on a verb, hupo stasis, or on a noun, excuse me, hupo stasis. So the idea is that which stands under. Everybody in this room is sitting on a hupo stasis. Something standing under you. Chair is. Okay, we understand literally what hypostasis, but let me give you a couple of figurative meaning that might be a help, a hypostasis. Uh, this, um, uh, this might help. Let's imagine uh, you're driving down the road and you have blue and red lights in your rearview mirror. And you're thinking to yourself, man, who's that guy after? And so you pull over to the side of the road, expecting the car to zip by, and the police car follows you. How many have ever had that happen? Let's be honest. Okay, you've had that happen. If you haven't, it's going to happen. Ask Brother Hines. There's something about age that it will happen sooner or later in your life. Okay, but anyway, so the car pulls, the policeman pulls over behind you. And I don't know about you, every time that happens, there's a universal sinking feeling in your gut. And if it hadn't happened yet, it's going to happen. You'll know exactly. We can all relate with it. You're thinking, hopefully you're thinking, you're not thinking, I mean, hopefully you're thinking, what did I do? Hopefully you're not thinking, he just caught me. Okay, but anyway, hopefully you're not thinking that. So imagine the policeman gets out and the policeman is as acting nervous. I don't know about you, I do not like nervous policemen. You know what I'm talking about? Especially if they look anything like Barney Fife. Okay, you are really worried that that trigger finger is going to cause trouble. And so this guy was nervous. He was acting nervous. So we're just illustrating. By the way, I did have that happen one time on Interstate 5 in California, San Joaquin Valley. I got pulled over, and uh, uh, he got out of the car, and uh, he was hiding behind the bumper, and uh, he honestly was treating me like I was armed. I guess they do that because in California, pretty much everybody is. It's called survival. But anyway, so um, uh, this guy was getting out, and he's going around. Uh, let's just imagine this. You know, he's acting nervous, and you're sitting there shaking. on. And he says, put your hands on the wheel. Put your hands on the wheel. And uh, he says, roll your window down. He says, can I leave the win you know, wheel? Yeah, okay. Okay, so yeah, come back. Put your hands back on the wheel. Okay, got the window down. He comes up, he's got his hand on his gun. And he says, you're in a stolen vehicle. You say, Mr. Officer, there must be some mistake. And you point with your elbow over to the glove box. I got my deed over here, and I got my wallet. I got my identification right here, and I can prove that this is my car. He says, okay, no jerky movements. And so you open, open the box, you pull out the thing, you get your license, and I know this is what you would say. You'd hand your license, and you'd hand that uh, title deed that has your name on it with the car, all that information, and you'd hand it to the officer and say, Officer, there must be some mistake. Here's my hypostasis to prove that this is my car. That's what you say, right? What you're saying is, these documents stand under my claim, this is my car. Are you getting what a hypostasis is? It stands under. How about another one? Let's imagine you've got tickets to go see the Chicago Bears play the Green Bay Packers on a Monday night. Okay, let's just say pre-COVID or post-COVID or whatever. Okay, so let's just get it realistic here for a moment. And you got tickets. For all you foreigners, you have no idea this is the ultimate rivalry in NFL football, the Bears and the Packers, which simply means it's a big rivalry, but the Packers are probably going to win. Okay, that's what it means. Okay, at least these days. But... Um, uh, back a few years ago, that might not have been true. But uh, so you got tickets to this game. You're all pumped up. Uh, you can put it in Lambeau. You can put it in Soldier Field, whichever way you want to go. Uh, but you got, I mean, tickets way down, right on the field, 50-yard line, few rows up, just beautiful tickets. Very expensive. Somebody gave them to you. So you and a buddy go down there, and, of course, you're, I don't know which way you'd be. I'd, of course, be in navy blue and orange. I'm sorry to tell you that. And uh, uh, some of you, of course, would be in the green and gold. And uh, you get there on the 50-yard line, and some of you could care less about either of those teams. But anyway, you're on the 50-yard line. You're cheering, having a great time. Halftime comes. 
You remember halftime? Halftime comes, you're a little hungry, so you go back to get your $14 hot dog and your $7 Coke. You know what I'm talking about? Ever been to a ball game, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so you go back, you get your stuff, and you come back to your seats, and guess what? Somebody is sitting in your seat. Somebody from Nosebleed came down there and during halftime, and they grabbed your seats. And I'm telling you, you're incensed. I mean, particularly because they're wearing the colors of the opposite team. I mean, you are incensed. So you walk up to the usher, and you hand out your ticket stubs to the usher, and you say, Mr. Usher, those people are sitting in my seats, and here's my hoopostasis to prove it. You hand them the ticket stubs. See, those ticket stubs stand under your claim, those are my seats. You get what a hoopostasis is, and here's what God says. That uh, the beginning of your hoopostasis, holding fast, the way you know you're saved, if you're holding fast, the beginning of your hoopostasis, that what stands under. So I want to ask you, the moment you got saved, what stood under your claim for sins forgiven and eternal life and deliverance from condemnation? And the answer is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Can I say his work? That's how you got saved. That was the very beginning of your hoopostasis. As you said, I can't save myself. Jesus, you've got to do it. I'm trusting you to do what I cannot do. And that's the moment you got saved. Now, here's the Bible. Here's what the Bible says. Genuine people, saved people, from the moment they get saved to the moment they die and faith becomes sight, hold fast the beginning of their confidence. In other words, can I say this? A saved person would never say, you know what, I think good works has something to do with it. No saved person would say that. You know why? Because down in our heart, we know, no, good works don't have anything to do with it. It's trusting Jesus to do it all. So could we say the very essence of a believer is that he's a believer. He's trusting, he's depending, his weight, his dependence, his leaning on is all on what Jesus did, nothing on what he did. Now, we all understand that, but that is, I believe, the, the test. So if you've ever doubted your salvation, what do you do? You go back and do and say, my faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. Help me out now. And that he died. Hallelujah. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. See, the way you know you're saved is not just friends by your performance. Not your performance. His. And all other ground is sinking sand. Now, I know what some of you are thinking now. Wait a second, preacher. Um, what about, uh, I've heard preachers say, what about change? Now, I want to ask you a question. When a man gets saved, is there change? And the answer is absolutely. <laughs> if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Absolutely, there is change. So you say, why can't we use change as the test? Well, number one, I don't believe the Bible tells us that that is the test. It's a secondary evidence. You say, why would it be a secondary evidence? Well, number one, change can be counterfeited. Change can be counterfeited, and the Bible is the one that tells us that. You ever heard of the parable of the wheat and the tares? Okay, now I want to ask you a question. What do tares look like? And the answer is wheat. 
Now, I've heard preachers, well-meaning, don't get me wrong, I've, done, I've preached some doozies in my life, so I'm not being critical. Believe me, uh, I'm certainly glad the Internet didn't show up until a few years ago because some of my early messages, I'm glad all they are, I was on cassette tape. I hope nobody finds them, puts on the Internet. But anyway, all that aside, uh, so I, I'm not being critical, but I've heard preachers get up and say, hey, listen to me, young people, you're out, looking on, you're out there drinking on the weekends, you're out looking at your uh, Internet pornography, you're a tear. Now, I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, wait a second. Tears don't drink. Tares aren't carousing around. Tares aren't cussing and telling dirty jokes. You know what tares are doing? Acting like wheat. See, they miss the whole point of the parable. The parable is the tares look like wheat. You know what tares do? They come to church every time the doors are open. You know, I've gone, into, I've gone into some Christian schools and some youth groups, and it's so funny to me. The youth pastors say, he's not saved, he's not saved, he's not saved. And I said, I would ask them, you mean they never made a profession? Oh, no, they've made profession of faith. They tell you they're saved, they just, they just don't live like it. And I kind of register that. I understand the youth pastor lives with them. But the funny part many times is the kids that he thinks need to get saved get revival, and the kids he thought were saved get saved. And <laughs> you know, we don't know what's going on in the heart. And the parable of the wheat and the tares is telling us, you can look good. You can do everything you're supposed to do. You could even be a student at Baptist College of Ministry, and you could be lost. Now, I want you to understand how we know you're lost. Back in those days, you couldn't tell the difference. They looked the same until, of course, Judgment Day, but that's a little late, isn't it? Say, preacher, I don't want to be a tear. I don't want to find out. Judgment day, I'm a tear. Okay, now we can do this in modern era. We couldn't have done it back then. But you could take wheat, crack it, stick it under the microscope, and a scientist could say that's wheat because the essence is wheat. Or you could take a tear, crack it, stick it under the microscope, and a scientist could say that's not wheat. Its essence isn't wheat. Are you tracking with me? Do you know what the essence of wheat is? I'm talking spiritually now. Do you know what the essence of wheat is? That they are believing. <laughs> They're depending on Jesus for Everything that involves their soul salvation. And you know what the essence of a tear is? That they're not believing. They're not totally depending on Jesus for everything. So their change is what we might call counterfeit. Counterfeit. Do you remember Matthew 7? Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in the name, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and in thy name cast out devils? And Jesus said, then I will profess unto you, I never knew you. I think I've said this before, but that passage used to bug the fire out of me. I'm thinking, man, those guys did things I've, I've never cast out a devil. Man, those guys did things I've never done. And then one day it hit me. Their answer was wrong. If you were standing before God and he said, I don't know you, what would you say? I don't, I, would you say, well, you know, God, I went to Baptist College Ministry. I, I was at church every time the doors were open, and I did this, and I went soul winning. And was that would be your appeal? Certainly wouldn't be mine. You know what my appeal would be? <laughs> Jesus, your blood is my only hope. I have no other hope of what you did on the cross. I have no other hope in that. Can I say this carefully in Matthew 7? Their answer was wrong. <laughs> Their answer betrayed works dependence. And so I want you to understand that the thing that really tells the difference, obviously, is the essence. So you can have counterfeit change. You can be not believing and, and look like a Christian. Okay, so that's the danger with change. It's, change is real when a man gets saved, no doubt about it. Okay, you say, well, preacher, I, I agree with that. But what about the other side? I mean, after all, uh, well, here's the other issue. When somebody's not living right, okay, so there's the person that's kind of counterfeit change. But what about the person not living right? Say, that kid, man, he claims to be saved. He's out doing this. He's doing this. He's got this problem. He's got, oh, he may be lost. Don't get me wrong. But think about this for a moment. 
I'm going to ask you a question. How long can a genuine saved Christian, how long can they live in sin and be away from God before everybody knows they weren't saved in the first place? They're just a fake. Well, how long somebody, I should say, how long should somebody who professes to be a Christian be the way to say it? How long can somebody who professes to be a Christian, how long can they be away from God in sin before we all know, no, nope, they're not saved? And the answer is, come on, help me out now. The answer is, the answer is, we don't know. So the question I would say is, how can you use that as a measuring stick when there is no measuring stick? And the point is, you can't. Because like I said, there's some people away from God, boom. You find out, well, they are, around. they really got right with God. Boy, they turned it around. And then there's others of them are lost. I, I don't know. My point is simply this. It's, it's a secondary evidence. Secondary. That's what I'm trying to help you see. Secondary. In fact, I want to ask you a question. If you don't know David, right in the middle of his hiding the sin of murder and the sin of adultery, would you have thought he was a vibrant Christian? And the answer is probably not. How long did David live covering sin and covering adultery? And the answer is over nine months. Over nine months, probably more like a year. And understand, friends, that he was as unright with God, not right with God as possible. And obviously he was genuinely a believer. So that can happen. It's not good. I'm not for it. I'm not trying to justify it. I'm just trying to deal theologically with the subject of assurance. So uh, understand that change is real, but it's a secondary evidence. Secondary. Because sometimes people who are living in sin, guess what they need? They need revival. They need to deal with their sin, get right with God. They're quenching the spirit. They're grieving the spirit. They need to deal with it. Sometimes they need to get saved. Could go either way. That brings us to a second one. How about chastisement? chastisement. Does the Bible say, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth? Sure it does. Does it say, but if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons? Does it say that? And the answer is, yes, it does. And unfortunately, I believe some people have taken that and not thought it through, which I did years ago as well. Now think about this for a moment. Uh, if a man can, uh, can do, do bad things happen to people going to hell? And the answer is, well, absolutely. Years ago, a young evangelist was preaching on the test, plural of salvation. And as he was preaching along on the tests of salvation, there was a Catholic man in the audience. When the service was over, the Catholic man walked up to the young evangelist, grabbed his hand and said, young man, I really appreciate that message. Now I know I'm going to heaven because God chastens me. Now, I want every gospel preacher in this room to hear this. Never give any sinner hope of salvation outside of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, what did he do? He actually gave him false assurance. Why? Because chastisement, don't get me wrong, can be misinterpreted. Bad things happen to lost people. It can be misinterpreted. No doubt about it. Now you say, well, what about Hebrews 12? Well, the key issue with Hebrews 12, you always want to determine why was the passage written. And in Hebrews 12, it is embedded the reason why it is written. It was written clearly to believers, and it was written so that they would not despise chastisement and they wouldn't faint under it. In fact, some of the Christians were basically saying, man, we don't like this chastisement. We wish we weren't being chastised. So the writer of the book of Hebrews says, now, wait a second. You, would want, you want to be chastised because if you're not chastised, you're an illegitimate. You wouldn't be one of his. He's not saying they were. I believe he's saying you wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want to be illegitimate. You'd want to be a son. Okay, so since he's a son whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's what I believe Hebrews 12 is trying to communicate. And it can be misused. So chastisement, we have secondary evidence. 
And uh, so you say, well, preacher, what would you do if this kid claims to be saved? You're not really looking like there's a lot of chastisement, which, by the way, you cannot always see. Because sometimes a Christian may be being chastised, but it's happening in here. You may not. I, I remember when I was growing up, and, I, and again, I don't blame all preachers for this, but I got the idea that chastisement was a body cast after a motorcycle or a car accident. You know where I got that impression from illustrations. I probably give an illustration to myself because I got a few like that. I mean, that, does God? I I can think of a kid right now. I mean, he was re, at special for resisting, resisting, and one day he comes to school and his whole face is puffed up, especially one side where his eye is equal with the bridge of his nose. You can imagine there was no eye socket; it was just puffed out like that. It was grotesque looking. So what happened to you? Got in a motorcycle accident. Well, I mean, everybody knew it was chastisement. It was like, that kid's being Jason. It, looks, it certainly looks like it. He was that kind of kid. The point is, chastisement can be dramatic like that, but I would say most of the time it's not. Have you ever sinned and all of a sudden there was, a, there was a, something in your heart? God started dealing with you in your heart. He started chastening you. And so that certainly is part of the dynamic as well. Now, I'm not diminishing chastisement, but you say, okay, preacher, what would you say about a kid who claims to be saved, but he's living in sin, and uh, he uh, he's, doesn't seem like he's having any chastisement? Here's exactly what I do, exactly what I do. I'd sit him down and, hang on, go over the gospel. Sometimes people might ask me, what would you do if you came into a Christian school and the principal got up and told you, or maybe told you privately, now listen, a lot of these kids claim to be saved, but they don't live like it. You say, preacher, how would you try to get them saved? And the answer is, I'd preach the gospel. Because the power's in the gospel. If they're going to hell, claiming to be saved, and going to hell, it's because they don't understand the gospel. They either have a wrong concept of what believe is, maybe they think of it as acknowledgement or whatever, or they wrong concept of who Jesus is, but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if there's something wrong with their, if they're not saved, it's because there's something wrong right there. They've either added or subtracted from the gospel. Are you tracking with me? So I'm going back to the gospel. Let's clarify this thing. Make sure you understand what believe is. Make sure you understand. You're going to learn this in Netcasters. It's your mind and your emotions, but it's also your will. You don't have to, you got, you got to know the gospel. You got to agree with the gospel. But you must depend on the gospel. I'd go over that, wouldn't you? Go over split trust. Go over all those things that you're going to learn in netcast. Some of you freshmen. But that's where I'd go. Why? That's where the power is. The power is in the gospel. Now, I'm not diminishing, and I am not for anybody living in sin. But I will tell you, getting saved again when you're already saved will not help you deal with your sin. Now, if you're not saved, it'll really help you. In fact, you can't deal with your sin. But the key is, knowing whether or not you're saved, is are you holding fast the beginning of your confidence? Are you right now realizing, my only hope is Jesus. He died for me, shed his blood. I have no other hope. That's who I'm resting in. See, that's, that's the test. The others are secondary evidences that should drive us back to the test, whether you're counseling or it's in your own life. Many more could be said about the test, because there's a lot more tests that I have heard. Those are the two big ones I've heard. There's other ones. And I don't finish the reality of them. I just try to put them in biblical proportion. Which brings me to a final illustration. I was uh, several years ago in Winter Garden, Florida, 1994, if I'm thinking correctly. And I remember that I um, remember thinking to myself, I know my great uncle lives in this town. I met him once in my life, 1981. And, and I met him once in my life, and I said, I know my great uncle lives in this town. I, I thought, you know what, as a gospel preacher, I really should find out if my great uncle is actually great uncle. I need to find out if my great uncle saved. It was my grandmother's. Uh, younger brother. And so I started asking some old timers in the church, and they had plenty of old timers. I said, you guys know uh, Floyce Jacobs? 
They said, yeah, we know old Jake. That was his nickname. We know old Jake. I said, do you know where he lives? No, I can't say that we do. But we do know this. Old Jake walks down Dillard Street every day. Sometime in the middle of the day, he'll walk down Dillard Street to the Burger King down at Highway 50 in Dillard. Okay, anybody familiar with Orlando, you'll know Highway 50. Okay, there's a Burger King right down there on that corner. He'll go there every single day. Just keep your eye out. So that's what I began to do. So one day, I'm out on the field, which was a good distance from Dillard, and I saw this old codger kind of, you know, kind of going down the road a little bit. I thought, well, it might be him. I got my van, didn't have to go very far. He wasn't going very fast. And I pulled up next to him, uh, got out of the vehicle, took one look at his face, and I knew he was my grandmother's younger brother. Same, you know, the same genetic features, everything, and, and the Jacob's features, and uh, which some of us have, which I'll not go into. But anyway, and so uh, I said, you Floyd Jacobs? He said, yeah, I am. I said, well, I'm your older sister Oma's grandson, and, and it didn't take me long to realize he wasn't getting it. First thing I noticed, he had about four layers of clothes with his pajamas on the bottom layer. That would be, layer. That would be very convenient. You never have to put on your pajamas. don't have to take them off. Just put a layer, a couple clothes on. That's what he did. I thought, something ain't right here. You know what I'm talking about? This is Florida. He's got four layers of clothes on. So I said, you going down to Burger King? Yeah, I am. Mind if I take him? No, I'll hop in. He, I could have abducted him. He had no idea it was, you know. And I take him down to Burger King. And I'm trying to talk to him, and I'm finding out pretty, pretty soon. Has the same affliction my grandmother did, dementia. He's repeating himself. He's talking about things 50 years ago like they happened yesterday. He's all worked up about things that are so far in the past. Yeah, you know, it doesn't even matter. And uh, I'm trying to talk to him, but it's not, it's not going real well. I mean, I just can't get in. I'd ask him a question, then he'd go off on his whatever, you know, and he'd circle back around. So we're in line, and I'm trying to talk to him in line, and the lady at the Burger King counter, he gets these eyes, like, huge. He went there every day. No one ever talked to him. She looks at me like, you know him? It was a moment of truth. Your day's coming. I thought, you know what? i got to tell the truth because I got his genes. One day I'm going to lose my marbles. I need people to be nice to me. Okay, so, okay, you be nice to me when I lose my marbles, Okay. I got the genes, honestly, okay. And so um, I said, yeah, he's my great uncle. She was shocked. Like, he, he knows people. He's got relatives. Unbelievable. They're normal people. You know, that kind of thing, you know. And so uh, we come up. They said the usual. He muttered something. They had it ready for him. It was, uh, I think, a cheeseburger. And his fries were made special. They didn't, they didn't stand up straight. They were wimpy. I mean, they just were all mushy, you know. They just, it was like that. And, and he had the money. I know you guys don't know what money is. But anyway, he had the money down to a penny, and he paid for it. Got it. We sat down. I'm, I, probably 45 minutes. I'd ask him a question like, do you know if you die, you go to heaven, stuff like that. Uh, and, and then he'd start talking about it. He'd go his circle around. I'm thinking, this is terrible. We weren't getting anywhere after 45 minutes. Well, I was going to have to get back to the church. Things were going on with our war special forces. And I remember, or maybe it was the war at that time. And I remember um, thinking in my heart, I'm not going to find out. I was kind of disappointed. Like, I, I just need to make an exit and get out. And it was like the Holy Spirit said to me, try one more time. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. So finally, I got word. I have to wait to get a word edgewise. And finally, when he landed the plane, I, I looked at him and said, now, how do you know if you were to die right this instant that you go to heaven and not hell? Something like that. I was really trying to get through to him, and it got through. And I'll never forget, my great uncle looked at me like I had asked him the dumbest question you could ask anybody. And he said, it's the blood, brother. I'm telling you, it's the blood, brother. Two weeks later, he died. I thought about suing Burger King. But anyway, two weeks later, <laughs> two weeks later, he died. I think it was old age, honestly. I'm sure Burger King didn't help. But anyway, 
Two weeks later, he died. On a serious note, when he died, I, and I heard about it, I thought to myself, well, I know I'll see him again. You know why? Because he's resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Aren't you glad that you can have dementia, hardly know your name or anybody else's? You don't even know, know where you are, but you can know that the blood is your only hope of sins forgiven on your way to heaven. Isn't that good? He was holding fast the beginning of his confidence. And that's how you know you're saved too.